You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bloom in Tech. I'm David Bloom. I hope you're finding plenty of ways to celebrate and enjoy the season's many holidays, whether it's been Hanukkah, Christmas, Yule, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, or some variant of the new year from here till, I guess, the middle of February. Pretty much all those holidays revolve around a notion of rebirth and renewal in some fashion or another. In much the same way, we're seeing rebirth and renewal in the stuttering industry of virtual and augmented reality, or what I like to call more inclusively, the business of immersive entertainment. It seems like I spent much of this past month talking with companies in the immersive entertainment space. In mid-December, I visited the first permanent venue for Dreamscape Immersive a couple of days before it opened, and 10 months after a pop-up version of its first title, Alien Zoo, appeared for six weeks in the same Los Angeles mall. Dreamscape has attracted a lot of attention, in part because it's backed by a number of Hollywood studios and big names such as director Steven Spielberg and composer Hans Zimmer, and led by longtime Hollywood producer Walter Parks, uh, live uh, entertainment uh, executive Kevin Wall, and its CEO Bruce Vaughn. Vaughn's 25 years creating theme park rides as a Disney Imagineer paid off particularly with the visitor experience at Dreamscape Immersive before you actually suit up with a visor, vibrating backpack, and foot and hand trackers. Vaughn and Parks used their movie and ride production experience to help create Alien Zoo and another of the first three experiences that they offer, in this case an Indiana Jones-style tomb crawler. The third experience, the Blue Deep Rescue, was built by Los Angeles-based WeVR, out of some of the same underwater assets of a previously available home experience. All three experiences are more story-oriented than the arcade-style first-person shooters and music games at some other location-based entertainment sites. For 20 bucks, you and up to five others can spend about 15 minutes in an otherworldly zoo, deep underwater, or in an ancient tomb. It's way too soon to tell whether Dreamscape's approach will succeed, but it does check off a lot of the boxes in the list of factors that can build success, including providing a range of unique experiences and managing throughput so it can accommodate enough customers to make money. The venue also has a promising location in the high-end Westfield Century Century City Mall, a huge space with a variety of engaging shops and restaurants that was redone the past two years at a cost of several hundred million dollars. A couple of doors from Dreamscape is an entrance to the hugely popular L.A. venue for Italy, and next door, a high-end steakhouse chain is about to open soon. It's clear that location really matters for location-based entertainment sites. You need a place with high foot traffic so potential customers can routinely discover your venue and try it out. Dreamscape has that and a lot of other things going for it, so I suspect it will find some success on at least a short-term basis. After the Dreamscape visit, I spent much of the rest of that week at various events tied to the -the on-the-lot conference held by the Advanced Imaging Society. The society represents many companies in the VR, AR, visual effects, animation, and post-production worlds, and attracts many top companies from throughout those industries. At the conference's first day at Paramount Pictures Studio Lot, the optimism among attendees was palpable. It was a welcome change after a hype-filled 2016 stumbled into a difficult and underachieving 2017. The gloomy market began improving earlier this year, enough that by year's end, quite a number of companies seem to have found their footing and possibly even sustainable business models. From my perspective, the immersive media business is going through a birth cycle somewhat similar to the early years of the personal computer. 
as happened with the PC, only hobbyists and other narrow audiences had the interest and will to spend heavily on the nascent technology. With PCs, mass success only arrived after Microsoft and IBM partnered to sell millions of DOS machines to business customers. People got used to computers at work and began to find other ways to use them and justify purchasing personal machines. I expect we'll see the same thing with virtual reality, where the real money so far has been in job training and manufacturing. VR and AR devices and software can allow workers to quickly document, practice, and maintain complicated processes, a boon to any industry and one that's being adopted widely. As that happens on the enterprise side of VR and AR, we'll finally begin to build the scale on the consumer side to enable significant ad-supported or brand-sponsored content. The Internet Advertising Bureau, companies such as Vertebrae.io, and brands such as Lionsgate and NASCAR have been working in this space for a while, but what they really need to make it go is scale. So far, however, it's been a much slower process on the consumer entertainment side, at least in the United States. The biggest growth has come in location-based entertainment, in venues such as Dreamscape Immersives, with dedicated out-of-home installations in malls, theater complexes, casinos, and similar busy areas that can provide enough potential audience for a high-level immersive experience that might cost 20 30 maybe even 40 bucks. Yes, Sony has sold more than 1 million of its PS VR headsets in the first year of those devices, which work with PlayStation 4 game consoles. And we're finally seeing some other moderately priced headsets from Oculus, Lenovo, and others that balance low-cost, lightweight design, and relatively high-quality images and sound. Only a few million VR headsets have been sold so far. Not yet enough for entertainment companies to create long-term business models. But that installed base should continue to build as prices drop, people use VR and AR in work settings, and location-based entertainment provides the high-end experiences that help persuade people to buy a home system later. One big trend is volumetric capture, which uses banks of cameras in a green screen room to grab three-dimensional video of performers. It's the next step beyond motion capture, which requires performers to wear a cat suit dotted with white balls to track movement and create the digital skeleton of a performer. It's the kind of technology that's been used in complicated visual effects shots the past couple of decades, in films such as Lord of the Rings and the recent Planet of the Apes films. Andy Serkis, of course, is best known for his work and these experiences, but Volumetric provides a really different experience that simplifies a lot of the process, even while it takes big new demands on computer processing. At the On The Lot conference, Sony showed the technology's potential, and the list of its partners, Dell, Intel, and Deloitte, suggests that volumetric capture has uses far beyond faster, more naturalistic visual effects in film and TV production. Being able to drop an actual person quickly and naturally into a digital backdrop can be useful for job training, industrial video, and much else. Metastage, another volumetric capture company built on Microsoft technology and headed by my friend Christine Heller, also had a prominent spot in the conference, hosting a reception and demos at its stages in the Culver Studios facility near production uh, operations for Amazon, Apple, and HBO. And a few days later and a few miles away, I visited a company called 8i, which is building and selling compact volumetric studios for about $150,000 each. As CEO Hayes Mackerman put it, it's hard to figure out a business model for such studios when they cost a million bucks a piece, as nearly as early prototypes did. But at 150000 companies can buy one and use it for a wide variety of compelling training and documentation projects. 
At 8i, I even took part in a brief volumetric capture process, lasting perhaps four seconds. That brief capture generated enough three-dimensional video data that it took a number of hours to render a 23-second clip of me standing, waving, and gesturing. But the potential for a wide variety of uses in enterprises, entertainment, video gaming, messaging, VR spaces, and much else are evident already as this technology continues to evolve. The current state of the technology does a good job capturing people in their usual street clothes or even in costume. Some challenges remain, however, in capturing fine hair and highly textured clothing. But those are the same high-end rendering challenges the Visual Effects Society solved over the past 20 years in high-end film production. I expect they'll solve it here, too, especially as access to higher-speed networks, 5G mobile, and cloud computing continue to change the landscape. The weekend after the On the Lot conference, I was in downtown LA's Arts District at the Wisdom, which bills itself as the world's first fully immersive entertainment art park and hosts a range of art and music happenings. The night I was there, an artist named Android Jones had programmed Samkara After Dark, a trippy, complex visual experience that unspooled overhead on the 40-foot-high ceiling of the largest dome to a wide range of music. Samskara was followed by Think Floyd EXP, a Pink Floyd tribute band featuring a former saxophone player for the, the psychedelic stalwarts. Think Floyd's live experience also had overhead images playing on the Dome's 12 projectors. It's a surprisingly consuming experience, though the band should have placed itself in the center of the room instead of in a more traditional location off to one side. We wanted to look up and watch those images unfold, not just look at the band. And I think it's hard for longtime musicians to think about where they should be when they're not the center of attention. Sam Scarra and Think Floyd, by the way, will be playing again this weekend at the Wisdom, providing a very different kind of immersive entertainment option for a very different crowd. One of the most interesting one-two punches in immersive entertainment this year came from a company you might not expect, Comcast. Its NBC Universal unit leveraged the June release of its latest dino disaster movie, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, to launch a traditional real-time strategy video game, an augmented reality mobile app, and a location-based ride, all within a few weeks of the movie's debut. That ride, Jurassic World VR Expedition, launched in more than 100 Dave & Buster's restaurants in late June, it did so well that Dave & Buster's executive said it had materially impacted the company's quarterly earnings and it had encouraged the company to both create more VR experiences and expand the number of its locations with the four-person VR systems it's created. The Jurassic World Live AR app was also a success. It was essentially Pokemon Go with dinosaurs, built on the Google Maps technologies that Niantic used for that earlier billion-dollar success. Soon to come will be a Harry Potter AR title that Warner Brothers Chief Digital Officer Thomas Gawecki told me will be far more involved than just gathering up fantastic beasts wherever you may find them. Not every venture panned out this year, of course. Most notably IMAX, the company known for its giant screens and immersive 2D and 3D films, shut down its short-lived experiment with VR theaters in seven locations around the world. I liked IMAX's Los Angeles space and some of its offerings, but I think it made a fatal mistake taking space across the street instead of inside the Grove and Farmer's Market, one of the most popular shopping and tourism locations in Los Angeles. Getting people to cross busy Fairfax Avenue to check out a rather anonymous-looking venue in a brand new sector proved more than IMAX could overcome. 
So those are some of the highlights from the fast-evolving world of immersive entertainment. Whether it's virtual reality, augmented reality, or some other kind of not-quite-this-reality, it's all been quite fascinating to watch. Next up, uh, I've got an interview I did several months ago with Bruce Vaughn, the CEO of Dreamscape Immersive and one of the creators of Alien Zoo. It'll give you a little more idea what Dreamscape is and what they're trying to do and what they learned from their first pop-up that they then applied to the new permanent facility. As I said earlier, it's a fascinating alternative to the first-person mayhem of Servios' raw data or elven assassin or the rides built on big Hollywood uh, intellectual property such as Jurassic World VR Expedition or the Void's Star Wars Secrets of the Empire. Give it a listen. Hi, everybody. It's David Bloom with Bloom in Tech. I am here at the Future of Immersive Leisure Conference in Las Vegas with Bruce Vaughn. He's the CEO of Dreamscape Immersive, a really interesting company among many trying to do virtual reality experiences that um, in physical locations. Um, they recently had a pop-up at the Westfield Mall in Century City here in Los, back in Los Angeles and uh, took a lot of lessons learned out of that. So mm-hmm. I heard you speak a little bit uh, last week at another conference and now you're doing this. You did Alien Zoo, the pop-up. Tell me first of all what Alien Zoo was. So Alien, Alien Zoo is is our first uh, our first title for Dreamscape Immersive. It's something that myself and uh, our team, obviously, at, at Dreamscape and Walter Parks, uh, who's one of our founders and uh, is a Hollywood producer and writer, wrote war games and sneakers and was uh, the uh, co-ran DreamWorks for the first 14 years, producer of over 45 films. So pretty good storyteller, my background being an Imagineer, um, you know, having overseen as chief creative executive the uh, attraction and entertainment for Disney worldwide. The two of us, uh, when we started Alien Zoo, firmly believed that what we weren't seeing enough of in the virtual reality space, and especially uh, uh, the shared experience kind of space, untethered, was uh, were experiences that were more narrative-driven, that leveraged the tropes of cinema, but combined the kind of uh, uh, agency and interactivity that you get from gaming, along with the visceral sensations, the awe and wonder and things you get from a theme park attraction. So we really look at that as our Venn diagram and try to find that sweet spot. It was uh, an idea that uh, when Walter was at DreamWorks, there was an idea called Alien Zoo. It wasn't this specific idea. But uh, as we were trying to think about what we would do first, he said, you know, there was this idea we could never figure out how to make a movie of, but it just feels like this could be an amazing thing. Who wouldn't want to go to uh, a hovering spaceship full of the endangered species from across the galaxy? It depends on whether you've been abducted or not. (laughs) Well... To become part of the alien zoo, there, but there is there is the potential storyline twist. Right, we, but, yeah. We're not that far from uh, was it Area Fifty One, so no, I'm no, just well, you know <laughs> maybe that was the other inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first theory was. Uh, uh, can you transcend uh, simple gaming? You know, there's a lot of first-person shooters. I think they're very fun, uh, worthy, and, and I have nothing against them. It's just not what Walter and I in Dreamscape Immersive is, is about. Uh, we wanted to, again, lean into things like Awe and Wonder. We wanted to give you a shared experience in which you were, you were actually on a narrative journey, that there would be an arc of a story beats uh, to, the, to, to 
to the story that you would be experiencing. Okay. So I, I do find that interesting because one of the, the challenges, I think, in this new medium, and it's not new in some ways, we've been, as we've heard at this conference, you know, there are people who have been doing this stuff for 25 years. Yep. They just haven't been able to do it at the level of investment, cultural yes. breakthrough, and all that. Yeah. But now we're kind of getting there. We're kicking at it, particularly, I think, in the location-based entertainment corner yeah. of VR. Finally, we're getting a broader array of stuff. Yeah. It's sort of like saying we could only have action movies. Now we can also have other yes. kinds of films. Well, and I think there's a, there's a few reasons, and it's one of the reasons after I left uh, Imagineering after 25 years and was going to take two years off, but I got interrupted when Walter and Kevin Wall, the other co-founder of Dreamscape Immersive, sort of seduced me into uh, becoming CEO of this company. Um, the reason I did that is I, too, over 20 years ago, worked on uh, VR for Disney. It was a mag uh, Aladdin's Magic Carpet Ride. Uh, at that time, you had to have a room, you know, the size of most people's living rooms full of silicon graphics computers, and you were tethered, and you had to make your own hardware, and because no one had anything. And even with all that, the graphic quality was just okay, um, and there wasn't a, a sense of a shared experience really in any way. What has happened, I think, now is we, we've we've crossed the tipping point of where the technology is no longer the thing that it holds you back. This is as clumsy as it's going to get. We know the speed, given Moore's Law and everything, in which these industries can advance, and looking at the level of investment and uh, uh, passion that these, the, the hardware manufacturers and, and are, are going at all the key components, not to mention you know, the inevitability of things like 5G, which allow you to you know, broadcast uh, uh, data so that you can just unpack things directly in a head mount, don't even have to have a backpack. All of that kind of stuff tells, told me a year and a half ago when I joined Dream that we're at the point now where the tech can become invisible to the experience. Something, you know, I always said at Disney was you want the, you know, the, the technology is, uh, is behind the magic. You don't want to make it about the technology. So that was one of the first things, and I think that's where creators are now getting very attracted to this kind of experience. Also, um, we have an audience, generations of an audience that understand role play. Uh, for many generations, most entertainment was passive. You know, you were you were not invited to have any real impact or influence um, on the experience, uh, other than maybe at theater you could applaud or boo. <laughs> but even that, it wasn't so participatory. There were a few things that began to happen. Uh, look at in New York City. There's a, a, a interactive theater, immersive theater experience called Sleep No More. It was one of the shows that I went to. And when I began talking about VR early on, I said that's what everybody should be looking at. It was one of the first successful experiences in which you feel like you're both an audience member and a participant because you're sort of a voyeur, but you could also be pulled in at any time to the story and be you know by the by the performers. And you had a free sense of exploring. There's no way to do in three hour experience the whole. Uh, experience. You had to keep going back. And it was it resonated with a group that Broadway couldn't get, people in their 20s. And they did a very high repeat. That same audience, and people in their early 30s, and people who are younger, understand immediately this notion that I have a role to play here, in fact, want it. We all, if you're invited into the right storyline, and this is what we did with Alien Zoo, and I can talk about what we call the comfortable chair of it all, you're invited to participate in a way. So we, with Alien Zoo, one of our 
very uh, pleasing results was whether we were four quadrant. We literally were 8 to 80. Actually, we went to 94 because Norman Lear came through. Norman Lear, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, and uh, four quadrant is, is movie speak for hitting uh, over 35 and under 35 male and female. Yeah. So it's that's like, it's that's, everybody. That's <laughs> the uh, the Disney quadrant. It is the Disney quadrant. <laughs> Which is everybody. And we successfully did that. And I, and I can tell you one of our theories that proved out that we did learn it, it, it worked. And we did feel that um, our approach would allow us to broaden that market uh, through the storytelling. So the reason I think you're seeing the ability to tell stories in this is the tech is no longer an issue. It's good enough. It's getting better all the time. Uh, you have audience members that understand uh, role play. And quite frankly, you have uh, now multiple generations of storytellers who understand how to tell stories in which there is agency. Uh, not choose your own adventure kind of things, which ultimately I think were always very unsatisfying because you want to be guided enough to say, you're, you're a master storyteller. Why am I picking the ending? You know I'm what I mean? you, dude. Yeah. Now, give me some agency and some sense that I've influenced and I can branch and maybe have some something that's unique and feel more important than anything is a sense of feeling present. Like, this is happening now. With location-based VR, and we're six people at a time, so you go in, you're untethered, uh, you have full body presence, which I think is an important aspect of what Dreamscape Immersive is doing. So we literally track feet, hands, body, and head, and uh, and so therefore you are the interface, um, which is very different uh, than a lot of other location-based VR. So you become an avatar, and you're, there you are, and you can shake hands with your friends, you can interchange and throw props back and forth. Um, so it, it's a very easy transition of like, oh, wait, this is me. Here I am. I'm in this world. I'm not asked to be something else. Also, with Alien Zoo, we didn't ask you to be anything other than a tourist. Um, we thought that was a very easy transition. The whole conceit is I step into this uh, uh, departure lounge, uh, which is run by the Intergalactic Wildlife Federation. We didn't do show times. We actually did departure times. You buy a ticket to go up to the Alien Zoo, which is hovering above, in this case, the Westfield Century City Mall. You get, you get As in, it does. Yes, it does. You get into your equipment, which is... Uh, we staged it very theatrically. We wanted to create the sense of like when you do any big adventure. So if you go scuba diving, you put on your equipment. If you go zip lining, you put on your harness. You know, so there's there was a sense of commitment and almost like, oh, what am I doing? This is something you know, uh, this is a bit of a commitment, and I enjoy it. I'm going on some sort of adventure, and I and I require equipment in order to do it. And then we never showed our audience the theater. They put down their head mounts and stepped into you know uh, the virtual world. They never got to see any of the the technology behind it all. The I never saw behind the curtain. Never saw behind the curtain. So when they entered this world, uh, you know, suddenly, and again, it was sort of like, you're a tourist, you're going up to this, you get on the space elevator, you're blasted up to the alien zoo. And quite frankly, this is very familiar. You know, it's, I know how to be a tourist. We did look at uh, certain bits of cinema, like the impact of Jurassic Park, that opening scene where Steven Spielberg was very smart and just letting that scene breathe. You know, welcome to Jurassic Park, and you know, it's a pretty good filmmaker. A pretty good filmmaker, and and you know, an investor in our company, and, and but he, you know, he knew how to do that, and we wanted to sort of emulate those tropes of cinema. That was one of them. It was like, wow, unexpected that I would go in this little space capsule and it would open up to a giant savanna full of alien creatures and just have that moment, and then suddenly you're on a flying platform. That's unexpected. I'm flying through and it's sort of a theme park attraction now and I'm on a journey and there's all these amazing creatures in the air. You get to interact with them. One of the first things you do is actually reach out and pet a creature. And we looked at this very theatrically. We
we are simultaneously thinking of it as a business where we're going to only do, like in good theater and good magic, you do the minimal required to, to stimulate the suspension of disbelief. So a few key moments early on and then reinforced you know, at different beats throughout where you break the plane between the virtual and the physical. I reach out, this alien horse, we call it the trunk horse or Elqui, comes over, two of them, really close to our platform, and the, the guests reach out and actually pet them, and they're there, and they touch them. And, uh, uh, and it's like, okay, what's going on? You know, where am I? This is like, you know. Um, and then you have a few more moments where you reinforce that through the haptics. Um, you take them on this journey, but then we switch it, where, because everybody, once you're in this world of cinema, wants to have a sense of agency and a sense that they can play the role of hero. So something goes horribly wrong, as in most good theme park attractions. <laughs> you, know, you think you're doing one thing, something goes horribly wrong, and suddenly now you're in the role of having to save yourselves or be a hero. And in this case, there's a predator, a very deadly predator, who you have to confront with your fellow travelers um, and uh, overcome it's that It's not obstacle. quite a velociraptor, but... Right, exactly, yes, yes. It's the, the dreaded Sakari, <laughs> the most deadly uh, predator in the universe, because uh, it... Uh, uh, the reason it was going extinct is because it actually had uh, uh, eaten everything, killed everything on its own planet. It was such a good predator. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's what you're up against. And then you come out, and then you know we hit a, a grand ending in which you sort of have a nice, you know, you sort of hover above the spaceship and look down at the Earth in the distance. And this again is, I think, aspiration and wish fulfillment. It's, who doesn't want to have the sense that we've seen from the, the photographs of the astronauts, where I get to look down at the the big blue marble, you know, and see my planet from the distance. And, and then there's a bit of an environmental message about extinction that we throw in there. But not heavy-handed, just because it, it felt like it was right for the story. And, uh, and you know, when you end on that beat, very cinematic. Hans Zimmer is an investor and our advisor. He oversaw the score and a group that he has called Bleeding Fingers actually did the score. So, um, you know, we sort of moved the score from atmospheric uh, kind of music that felt like it was of the zoo to something that was much more John Williams at the end because you wanted to hit that emotional, you know, unabashedly hit that emotional climax at the end where it was like, wow, you know, this is amazing. I'm looking down at Earth. And then I think the big thing we learned was... And again, we didn't show the theater, so when you take off your head mount, you're back in this little room where you were geared up, and, and then you step out into, you know, in the case of Southern California, the sunny mall where there's a Tesla store and a coffee shop. And Amazon I, books. Amazon books, and I think you know, everybody's like, what just happened? Right. You know what I mean? I right. just, I just, and one of the things that I think is very powerful about this medium and why I think it's going to be incredibly successful when done right is if you saw the movie called Alien Zoo, you would say, I I went to the theater and watched the movie. When you do the dreamscape immersive version in which you are, you know, a traveler and you say, you don't say I went to the theater and watched it. You say, I went to the alien zoo. And when people talk about it, no, I've gone to the alien zoo. Then you see them thinking like, well, wait a minute. Is there really an alien zoo? Well, I touched this thing. I interacted with these characters. I smelled things. I got sprayed by things. I was up in the air. I fought this beast. I mean, God, it feels it functions like a real memory. Right. And I think there's a very powerful, you know, uh, aspect to to VR. And specifically now, you sort of said it. What we can do outside of the home, I do think it's the tip of the spear for this industry, but right now what you can do outside of the home is an order of magnitude more compelling than what you can do in the home. 
you also had some lessons learned, though, I think, in some of the just technical aspects of how you run something. You did this pop-up for, mm-hmm. it ended up being six weeks because they liked it so much yes. that the mall said, stay a couple more weeks. Yes. You got your run continued, I yes. guess, in theatrical terms. Yep. Um, but you learned some things that will apply whenever you get to open a permanent facility. Mm-hmm. And talk real quickly about a Well, look, of you know, uh, we threw that whole thing together very quickly because the offer came to us from Westfield in this permanent pop-up location in November, and they said, you know, we want you in in February. And uh, and so suddenly we had to wrap up our first piece of content, figure out our entire website and ticketing system, you know, and, uh, and you know, and finalize the first round of product design for trackers and, and really think through the operations. Now, we were a little hindered in this space because it was a smaller footprint than we, than we want or would require in a more permanent space or in future pop-ups. Mostly in that, what we call the gear up, gear down area, uh, what you really want for throughput reasons, so how many people you can actually get per hour, is uh, to be having people gearing up while people are in the experience and while another group is gearing down, so that the theater is, is really it's mere seconds that the theater is ever not you know, uh, catering to uh, paying customers. Um, we weren't able to do that. We actually had to gear up and gear down uh, pretty much in the theater, and we actually literally did use a curtain to sort of block the equipment. Um, but uh, that meant we could only have one group for gear up, show, and gear down, which really hindered our... We did get it down to around 28 minute, 28 minute cycle time uh, to turn people around, which is actually very healthy if you go to the, the two gear up, gear down uh, mode. Um, so that definitely reinforced the sense that, okay, what we need to do for gear up, gear down. Um, we we did learn uh, a lot about uh, what people like. We had a theory that people would want to pick avatars and you know be able to personalize to some degree. Um, that was very true uh, on the whole. Um, we uh, uh, as far as. Uh, Technical things. Actually, you know what? The shows, surprisingly, our shows ran incredibly well. It was a very solid platform. Uh, uh, we didn't have any really lost shows at all. Um, we, you know, you always identify a few things on efficiency with networking and things like this, which we've since implemented. Um, as far as customer experience goes, uh, one thing that was confirmed with us is that this notion that people want to don't they want VR has an interesting thing but if you lean away from the tech and into the story people found that very uh, reassuring um, so we we had a very small space 200 square feet of a, what we would call a little lobby area and we themed that out as since we were only one title in this venue the Intergalactic Wildlife Federation's you know sort of welcome lounge you know and it had and it was sort of if it leaned anywhere it would lean into sort of a you know, Victorian-esque adventurers club kind of feel, slightly modern, but um, more like that than anything else. Steampunk. Yeah, a little steampunk, but a little softer than that, actually. And uh, we um, and we had, you know, all of the different, uh, all of our creatures' designs were our original, and we did the backstories for each one, what planet they came from. We had postcards that described those. Uh, we sold a little bit of merchandise. What we learned in that space is that people loved stepping into the story that early. It's unexpected. It was warm. Uh, we heard those words out of their mouths. Um, and what we weren't able to do there is give people coming out, because you'd have people checking in on iPads to sign waivers, pick avatars, things like this, in that same space. The people coming out, being that this is such a unique experience, and they've just shared, and even if they were with strangers, they felt bonded, they actually wanted to hang out. 
And it was too small, and it wasn't really set up to be conducive enough to hang out. So when we do our first... You, you need know, an exit strategy. We are, yes. And it needs to be one that allows people to sort of slow down, absorb what they did, offer them you know, opportunities to maybe reinforce and deepen it. You know, yeah, not buy, unlike... Buy merchandise. Well, then certainly the theme park drink, model of... Yes. But, but you know, it, with an eye towards uh, social. You know, yeah. unlike the theme park attractions that I worked on where you would exit through the, you know, the, the store. Um, you know, we believe that... We want to offer a, a inherently more social environment because slow people down to where they can spend a moment still in basking in the dreamscape of it all, but um, be able to sort of talk about it and have our our employees, or I call them cast members because of my dizzy days, um, you know, be able to help reinforce all that. Uh, probably have some food and beverage because that's a very social thing to do. Uh, obviously, opportunities to uh, uh, take memorabilia, which is you know uh, merchandise. <laughs> Um, but still something that is reinforcing, not just merchandise for the sake of merchandise, but something that also reinforces the brand. Also, a, um, uh, a note you know, for, for listeners is we only did one title at the pop-up because that's all we had room for. When we open Dreamscape venues, uh, uh, they will have multiple titles. Right. So there will be more than one and very different, and we're purposely looking at uh, different uh, looks and feels and different genres so that it, when you do Alien Zoo, which is very much the sort of epic theme park ride kind of thing, we'll have uh, another offering which is not so much that. You know, It'll be more of an uh, uh, individual adventure kind of thing. Well, individual with you and five other people, but more of like, okay, we're a little group on an adventure and not so much Taurus doing something. Um, things like that enter into different genres. Different, and, and artistically, we in our lab in, in facility in Culver City, we continue to, um, through an R&D efforts, R&D efforts, continue to develop looks and feels, a painterly quality, a, a very photoreal quality, a, whatever is needed to really differentiate. So even though on the surface, it'll look like these are sort of 10-minute experiences, six people at a time. The the great thing about you know location-based VR is you you can the same dumb black box can be anything you want it to be. You know right. you don't have to rebuild you know the venue, so that venue becomes very flexible. But um, when you've done one, you will not feel like I've done a dreamscape thing. It'll be more like, well, no, I got to do another one because that was very different than this one. You know, well, it's like going to a theater. It's a different movie. That's but, right. But you do have that need to refresh the content. Yes. Or as you said, make sure it's got a built-in replayability. That's right. Those are the two issues. One, you know, some diversity. Yes. And replayability and updating yep. it from time to time. Yes. We also learned, um, uh, as far as, you know, we went out with a $20 ticket price all day long. We didn't do any off-peak pricing. Um, uh, you mentioned that uh, we didn't do any paid media advertising. Uh, there was uh, there's quite a few digital screens at that mall. Uh, those had us up there for about a week before, and then there was just our very small facade, which was a bit mysterious. We we it was a kind of a artistic moment from the experience where you're going through this bioluminescent tunnel, and it was just a very beautiful picture that drew people in. We put an ambassador sort of out in front, because you couldn't see in, um, who, when people asked, which they inevitably did, said, what is this alien zoo uh, uh, experience? Um, beyond that, and we just put our website out there, uh, we didn't even have media. That was embargoed until the first day that we opened. We were over 50% sold just based on 
on the website and the mall having that. And after the, the media hit, we were 100% sold within 24 hours for the first four weeks. And then the same thing happened with the two weeks that we were extended. Uh, so there was a curiosity. And all we, you know, we sort of were going to play down the VR of it all because we see ourselves as immersive storytellers who happen to use VR because it's the best way to, to do it. But we got some good advice from one of our advisors who said, you know, you got to give some people a little bit of an idea because is it a movie? I don't even know what it is. So we, the only tagline we had was a VR experience unlike any other. It drew a lot of curiosity. People were, you know, uh, you know really, really intrigued. Um, so we ended up with a long wait list. That helped us when we extended to just hit that wait list. We still have a wait list, by the way. People keep asking, when I didn't get to see it or I want to do it again. So that was really fascinating. There is beyond, and the fact that we went out with a completely unbranded piece of content, you know, aliens. Very little the, media push. Very little media. What the heck is that? It shows that... Uh, I think it's an easy thing to grasp. There's an alien zoo. Okay, I, that, that sounds fascinating. But mostly, I think it just shows this curiosity in this new medium, you know, that and it was across ages. And then, and then, over forty percent of our. Uh, 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 further ticket sales was pushed by recommendation on social media. People just were blasting it out there saying, you got to go do this. It's not what I expected. People who had never done it before. We, over 200 people took our survey. And that was fantastic because people who hadn't done VR before said, I did not ever think that VR could make me feel awe, wonder, and, and can be this kind of epic kind of story-driven thing. It's just not what they thought it could be. People who had done VR um, uh, over 90% of them felt like it was the best VR experience they had done and 97%, this is the best number, the most important to me, 97% said that they would absolutely recommend uh, people to do this at $20 or $25 because later we did run some shows at $25 per person. And I can tell you as far as uh, impact of the consumer, the $25, it was almost like we didn't change the price at all. They didn't think twice about going to $25. So really kind of interesting learnings for us. So thank you, Bruce. This has been David Bloom with Bloom and Tech, uh, talking with Bruce Vaughn, the CEO of Dreamscape Immersive, the creators of Alien Zoo, a VR experience unlike any other, as they would put it, and over and out. Thank you, Bruce. And that's our show today. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, I really appreciate it, and I can't tell you how much you mean to me. I hope this has been a week of reconnecting with family and friends, of rest and review, and of getting ready for the 2019 looming just ahead of us. I also want to give thanks to our sponsors who do so much to make this podcast possible. I'm a blessed man, not least for having you as a listener. Thanks again, and Happy New Year. This is David Bloom, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. <laughs>